Hello and welcome to Rising. We have a fantastic show planned for you today and I'm joined this Friday by the lovely Jessica Burbank. Great to be back with you, Jessica. We're back again. Jesus rose on the third day, but we rise every Friday. <laughs> I love that. Well, we're going to have, um, unfortunately, some tragic new developments in the missing Titanic tour submersible. Yesterday afternoon, officials confirmed the debris field found on the seafloor near the Titanic wreck indicate Ocean Gate's Titan sub suffered a, quote, catastrophic failure in the vessel's pressure chamber. Ocean Gate released a statement confirming all five passengers aboard Titan are presumed dead. Now, shortly after confirmation of the sub's demise broke yesterday, the Wall Street Journal reported that a top-secret U.S. Navy sonar in the North Atlantic detected a noise consistent with an underwater implosion just hours after the vessel went missing on Sunday. This new revelation has prompted criticism over the search and rescue effort launched by the U.S. and Canadian militaries. Reporter Paul McLeod tweeted, quote, if this is right, then the sub imploded within hours. The U.S. Navy knew it right away. We've spent days marshalling vessels and spending millions on a pointless rescue mission while they said nothing because it's a secret system. Then the secret leaked. So this is uh, some really shocking news that we would have spent millions to search for five folks who likely died instantly. And, and they knew that that was likely the case given that this implosion happened just after they lost contact with the submersible. I think a lot of folks are, are quite disappointed with the response. And many people are, are just outraged that there were five people who paid a quarter million dollars to go on this submersible. When the CEO, Stockton Rush, had complained about regulations in the industry, calling them things like like they're absurd, saying all sorts of things that, that the regulations were not necessary and were unnecessarily restrictive. And now we're in this situation. I think there's an opportunity cost here uh, as to where those millions of dollars could have gone. There are plenty of people in the United States that die preventable deaths because they don't have the resources to pay for health care. And the fact that millions were allocated towards a rescue mission when likely all five people who were on board this submersible had already passed, that's what's really striking for me when it comes to this story and how it's ending here. Yeah, I didn't oppose the rescue mission when there was a reasonable and conceivable idea that they would potentially still be alive when they found the submersible. But the fact that the Navy knew that this had supposedly combusted days ago and didn't say anything, even if they had just given the rescue team a heads up, like, hey, Coast Guard, we got word. Can't tell you how, but we know that the sub has has exploded or combusted. That would be actually really great. Obviously, they didn't do that. And there's tons of conspiracy theories swirling around about why they didn't do that. Um, but otherwise, I don't have a problem with rich people spending their money on dumb stuff. I think the vast majority of advancement throughout society has been because of rich people spending their money on dumb stuff. And I'm never going to begrudge someone for having an adventurous spirit. I have no problem with that. And I think a lot of the criticism of rich people wanting to spend their money, which $250,000 for a rich person is obviously small potatoes, on this expedition is a little bit of jealousy. For me, it's more about uh, when you have billionaires, which we did on the submersible and people with hundreds of millions of dollars, those dollars represent real productive capacity and things of value in our economy. That's how you know currency works in our society. And so when you have people hoarding 
billions of dollars of wealth, those dollars represent real things. They are hoarding resources. And so it's a direct consequence of people like the wealthy folks on that submersible that others don't have the resources that they need to meet basic material needs. And that's just poor management of our currency, poor management of the monetary system. And I understand that many people say, well, we have to treat everybody as human beings. We can't make jokes about the folks on the submarine just because they were rich and they ran our economy in exploitative ways at the consequence of others. They're human beings as well. We should have empathy for them. Let's take that sentiment 10 steps further and say, what about the refugees that died off of the coast of Greece? Uh, dozens are dead, hundreds are missing because they were trying to take a, a boat across the Mediterranean Sea. Let's also take that same logic and sentiment and think about the hundreds of thousands of preventable deaths we have. Uh, we have 45,000 people dying every year in the United States because of lack of healthcare coverage. I think when we see the amount of material resources that go to waste, uh, that we have the capacity to produce enough as an economy to make sure everybody is fed and everybody has healthcare, but we have an allocation problem, I think we should bring that same outrage and take that same exact logical argument 10, 10 steps further and really think about the consequences of having people with this much excess wealth. I just don't accept the premise that because you're wealthy, you've uh, you've necessarily exploited other people or been greedy. Um, I don't think that's the case at all. And there was a 19-year-old on this boat with his father who, I mean, is still in the early stages of his life. He's not some uh, guy who has spent his life stepping on other people's heads, becoming a billionaire by exploiting the system or what have you. He's someone who is trying to give his dad a nice Father's Day gift. So I do have compassion for these people. Would I have gotten on the submersible? No, um, definitely not. I think it's kind of a guy thing, to be honest with you kind of doing stupid stuff for the adventure, um, especially considering a lot of the warning signs that were involved in this submersible. But again, I don't begrudge people for taking that risk. I mean, for example, I would have the same level of compassion for a middle-class person who went out on a kayak in the middle of a lightning storm. I would think that what they did was stupid, but I would still feel bad for them and I would want the Coast Guard to try to rescue them. Yeah, when I think about the 19-year-old, the I think that's a similar situation, right? He, he didn't have much agency. He, his father decided that this is something he wanted to do. And the kid said, you know, Father's Day is around the corner. I'm just going to I'm going to go with him uh, out of respect for him, even though I'm terribly afraid. I think there are a lot of children in the United States that are just born to working class families who are not paid a living wage by the folks they work for. And those corporations are making billions of dollars in profit. That's inherently exploitative. When you're making people so that they have to struggle to pay rent and rely on food stamps while still working over 40 hours a week, and the corporation's making a, a ton of money off of your labor. No one accumulates a billion dollars without exploiting others. There's just no way it can possibly happen, that amount of money. And so when I think about this situation, yeah, of course, I, I feel bad for, for anyone who has to suffer, anyone who has to die. And I think the sentiment needs to be taken further that if we, we care about suffering and if we, we care about preventable deaths, then we should also care about those that happen every single day, not just in unique circumstances like this. I think it's very fitting that uh, this was called Ocean Gate uh, because it's turned into like Pizza Gate or Water Gate or any of the other gates we like to tack on to the end of controversies. 
But I, I think it's it's become a moment where people are really learning from it and learning about how resources are spent in the world. And I think the wealthy are learning about how fed up working class people are with the excess wealth and how it's used and how that happens. I guess there should be a question of how much money a rich person is allowed to spend on vacation before somebody deems it too much. Um, but to your point about Oceangate, there's some speculation online, mainly by those on the right, that the submersible search was a distraction by the Biden administration to turn attention away from the Hunter Biden probe, which we will, of course, cover extensively later in the show. What do you think about that, Jessica? Um, I don't think that there's that much uh, manufactured consent there. I think that there's uh, going to be coverage of the Hunter Biden investigation no matter what. I don't think the media loves Hunter Biden as, as much as many conservatives think they do. I don't think it's it's that much of a protection there. I do believe the establishment certainly will, will do things to protect candidates like Biden and the establishment candidates. But I also think they had a vested interest in making this story a big deal so that we could have this conversation where they say, oh my gosh, it would be absurd for you to not have compassion for these people, even though they're very rich. We're seeing a lot of pieces hit the press right now about how inhuman it is to make jokes about something like this. And that just doesn't land the same way when you have these same legacy media companies saying that it is necessary that we keep a group of the population unemployed for the economy to function well, and that suffering is necessary and that people need private health insurance. And that's why we should have these preventable deaths all of the time of illnesses that are curable that people can't get health care for because they don't have insurance because of how our private insurance industry works. And so I I just I I don't think it's about Hunter Biden. I think it's a part of a larger narrative of manufacturing consent, but not specifically a distraction from Hunter Biden. Meanwhile, Titanic director and experienced sea venturer James Cameron weighed in on the tragedy. Let's watch. Ocean Gate shouldn't have been doing what it was doing. I think that's pretty clear. I wish I had been more vocal about that, but I think I was unaware that they weren't certified. Uh, because I wasn't really studying it. I wasn't really interested. Stockton Rush asked me if I wanted to go out there and dive this season. You know, I wasn't interested. There was a lot of concern about this outfit and this sub. A lot of concern, even to the extent that I wasn't involved in it because I was making Avatar 2 at the time, but a lot of them got together and wrote a letter to, uh, to Oceangate and said, you have to certify you cannot take people down. It's irresponsible. And it could lead to catastrophe. Monday morning when I first found out about the incident, got on a whole bunch of calls and emails. It's a small community. Within an hour and a half, I had the following information. They were on descent. They were at 3,500 feet. They lost comms and tracking. The last one being the critical one. Because the, the transponder that's used to track a sub during descent and on the bottom, is a fully autonomous system. It's in its own pressure housing, and it has its own battery power. So for them to lose comms and tracking at the same time, sub was gone. There was no question in my mind. I have to say that uh, I guess there's some comfort or, or positive that these people ended up dying a quick death rather than the alternative, which was that this submersible was underwater floating around and slowly they ran out of oxygen and suffocated to death. Um, that obviously would have been horrifying and I cannot imagine dying that way. 
Yeah, I also can't imagine why the U.S. Navy wouldn't release that information right away either. Perhaps they were confirming it wasn't some other vessel that imploded and didn't want to report on it and then have Ocean Gate be found later. And now they've reported on some other vessel that exploded near the Titanic or imploded rather. But it does sound like when all of us were wondering if they were running out of oxygen and struggling with hypothermia, facing a really slow death that actually, no, they died quite instantly if this submersible exploded. I think also Stockton Rush having so many people around him warning him about the dangerous nature of taking people this far down in this submersible it is just showing the, the lack of empathy there on his part because he called the regulations in the industry obscenely safe doesn't sound like that was really the case. For someone to advocate against safety regulations is something we've seen a lot from CEOs of America's biggest corporations. We're just getting reporting out of East Palestine that uh, the rail cars were blown up because it was more convenient uh, for the rail industry rather than a consideration of the public safety of the people living in the area. They always lobby against regulations in the direction of them doing things more cheaply at the consequence of their workers and at the consequence of consumers and, and people who live nearby and have to endure those negative externalities. So yeah, Stockton Rush will, will never face the consequences for his actions there. And so hopefully everyone else will, will learn from what it means to lobby against safety regulations and that they're there uh, for good reason in the first place. It does sound like if there was any villain per se in this case, it was Stockton considering he ignored all of the warning signs about the potential safety uh, downfalls or drawbacks of this particular submersible. I also wanted to mention the sort of weirdness about, I believe it was a son-in-law of one of the passengers who was on the submersible who um, went to a Blink-182 concert in the midst of the rescue effort and said that he was justifying it because his parents would want him to go to the Blink-182 concert while they were lost at sea, and then promptly, I think, had to delete his social media account after he tweeted the N-word. Um, so kind of a weird saga there. Yeah, I think that sounds to me like a, a typical story of you know, super rich kids with parents that might not be fully present. They might not have a terribly close relationship. I know if my parents were in a life or death situation, I would not be able to do anything but worry about them. And so that just signals to me that perhaps they weren't very close. And tweeting the N-word, I think I saw uh, they commented on an OnlyFans creator account as well. People were really putting a lot of public pressure on this guy when... I, I don't think it's a, a part of the story really at all, other than we can learn from the human experience of, you know, the, the disconnect that a lot of rich parents who, who don't want to be a part of their kids' lives or don't have the time to because they're working, they end up not having a very strong relationship and they do things like go to Blink-182 concerts when their parents are facing, you know, looming death. Yeah, that is a really sad thing. Um, overall, again, I, I, I feel so... Um drawn, I think, to the idea of an entrepreneurial and exploratory spirit. Um, obviously, in this case, it didn't work out for these people. And especially in the Titanic case, so many people have been down to see it at this point. I'm not sure what additional information they were hoping to glean. But I'm reminded of the story of Magellan's exploration and circumnavigation of the globe, where he started with five ships and 270 men and ended up with just one ship and 18 men. And he himself lost his life in that exploration. So. I hope that we continue to foster adventure and not lash out at it, but we'll be back with more Rising after this.
The House Ways and Means Committee has released transcripts from the federal investigation into Hunter Biden. A panel voted to make almost 400 pages of interviews with two IRS employees, including criminal supervisory special agent Gary Shapley, public. According to the testimony, the DOJ, FBI, and IRS interfered with the Hunter Biden probe. Ways and Means Chairman Jason Smith said the testimony, quote, outlines misconduct and government abuse at the Internal Revenue Service and the Federal Bureau of Investigation in the investigation of Hunter Biden. The committee also approved the release of a transcript of the private session, which was reportedly held because the documents, quote, included taxpayer information protected under the tax code. Roll call writes, according to Smith, the panel has not requested any of Hunter Biden's tax returns. According to the testimony, President Joe Biden was there when Hunter Biden messaged Chinese businessman Henry Zhao on WhatsApp. The message reportedly read, I am sitting here with my father and we would like to understand why the commitment made has not been fulfilled. Tell the director that I would like to resolve this now before it gets out of hand and now means tonight. And Z, if I get a call or text from anyone involved in this other than you, Zhang, or the chairman, I will make certain that between the man sitting next to me and every person he knows and my ability to forever hold a grudge, that you will regret not following my direction. I am sitting here waiting for the call with my father. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy tweeted, here's what we just learned from IRS whistleblower testimony. The IRS gave Hunter Biden's tax case preferential treatment. The DOJ interfered with the investigation at every turn. The IRS retaliated against those very whistleblowers for telling the truth. NBC reporter Garrett Hake said that the White House said President Biden has, quote, upheld his commitment to let this investigation proceed free of any political interference and that a DOJ spokesman, quote, denied any such interference. So, Jess, this is um, the latest in a line of corruption related to the Biden family that we've talked about on this show. But this is a very particular indictment of the FBI and the IRS because they claim that Hunter Biden basically got a sweetheart deal and that the DOJ actually interfered with the investigatory process. Yeah, the the way I see this is they get this document from, you know, a, a informant, right? The FBI spends about $42 million annually on dealing with informants. And the document itself has been obtained by now members of Congress. But Rudy Giuliani initially, you know, tipping folks off that this document existed is really interesting. That part of this process has been political. I think the FBI deciding that, well, we can't disprove it, but we can't prove it either tells us what we need to know, right? Because what we know about this document is allegedly $5 million went to Hunter Biden, $5 million to Joe Biden, but they said that it would be very difficult to trace. And we know that very wealthy people are very, very good at hiding their money overseas and foreign accounts and executing transactions that are very difficult to trace. And perhaps this is the FBI saying, well, we actually don't have the capacity to trace how this money was transferred between accounts. And so we we can't prove this. What kind of a position does that put the FBI in? I think they were embarrassed to reveal they didn't have the capacity to arrive at a conclusion when it comes to this case. And I think James Comer has put forward, you know, a pretty good strategy legislatively where senior officials would have to disclose their transactions with foreign corporations. However, if they're very confident that their transactions are untraceable, 
will they? Is that really a solution? And it puts us in a really precarious situation when it comes to that. I also think the Democrats deciding to not make the information public is really telling. I hope that they do at the conclusion of their investigation. Yeah, it's also really uh, bizarre, some of the um, statements that have been made by Attorney General Merrick Garland in regards to the IRS case involving Hunter Biden, because when he testified to Chuck Grassley um, previously, he claimed that there was no interference in the case and that the special prosecutors were able to take the case in whichever state that they wanted. But according to this whistleblower, they wanted to try the case in California or another state because they weren't getting anywhere in Delaware. And they were actually denied the ability to do that from the highest levels of the DOJ. So there's a fundamental contradiction in what the whistleblower is saying and in what, uh, in what Merrick Garland is saying, not to mention the fact that uh, Hunter Biden's lawyers uh, right after this sweetheart deal was announced, we're trying to claim that Hunter was also settling with London Roberts, the mother of his child in that Arkansas child support case, for $5,000 a month, despite previously paying her $20,000 a month, whereas a source very close to the case tells me that there has been no settlement and that there has no been no dollar amount close to $5,000 announced yet. So it seemed like another um, intentional move for Hunter Biden's legal team to try to make it seem like all of his possible court troubles were over. How embarrassing would it be if we had the lawyers of London Roberts obtain more financial information on Hunter Biden than the FBI or DOJ or Congress were able to? That would be terribly embarrassing and would really expose fractures in our legal system and corruption in the United States. And it seems that that's the reality we're going towards. And it's because the lawyers of London Roberts are the former lawyers for the Trump administration disputing election fraud or actually alleging election fraud in the state of Wisconsin. These are the same lawyers that took that case that are now uh, Hunter Biden's mother of his children's lawyers about that settlement reducing the, the child support payments that Hunter Biden is paying to her. The fact that that could expose more financial on, financial information on Hunter Biden than any kind of investigation by the folks who are supposed to investigate this stuff at the federal level is insane. And it, it shows the state of our country. I think Merrick Garland has done a pretty terrible job when it comes to investigating things that happen at the federal level in our country. And I believe people at, at both sides of the aisle at this point feel that way. And the FBI is clearly not equipped to investigate what we would expect them to investigate. So what kind of intelligence is required to investigate transactions overseas when it comes to, to tracing financial payments of this nature? I don't think anybody at the federal level is incentivized to do that because most people who end up becoming senior officials are people who also have foreign dealings with multinational corporations. And so it's got to come from somewhere else. And it, I hope it's a, something that comes out of Congress following this investigation. We also have to question if the FBI is embarrassed or if they don't have any shame, because if the whistleblower's allegations are true, this was an intentional cover-up, not just an inability to properly investigate. They claim that the investigation was slow-walked in some instances. In other instances, um, they were trying to speed up certain investigatory efforts. They apparently were trying to pause certain portions of the investigation until after the 2020 election. 
And also, um, there was apparently interference in some of their um, efforts to uncover certain documents related to the case. And according to roll call, though, Democrats did not resist entering the private session on Thursday, but they actually voted against making information public at its end. Chairman Smith said the meeting to vote on the release, quote, is about transparency and bringing to light facts about alleged government misconduct, roll call writes. Um, and to your point, Jessica, earlier about, um, you know, politicians who might have their own corruption being unwilling to make all of this stuff public, they might think that they're protecting themselves, but I think there are no votes say at all. Right. I think that the black box of the transaction, fine. We have a black box. We can see perhaps that money went out from executives of Burisma, and that money went in around the similar time of the amount of $5 million to Hunter and Joe Biden. And I think that would have been enough for the FBI to pursue further investigation or even make the information public or turn it over to the oversight committee. But that's not what happened. Uh, to use the excuse that we can't investigate it, I agree, is perhaps no shame rather than them being embarrassed of their inability to investigate it. I think the FBI would very much be able to get the resources necessary to just see the money going into the account when it comes to Hunter and Joe Biden and out of the account when it comes to the Burisma executives. And so it's it's not good partisan politics. If you want to you know, be a Democrat and say you really care about our democracy and the freedom of information, but in this case, you don't want to make this investigation public, I don't like that just as someone who likes democracy. And I would say the same thing if it were Republicans doing it. I just don't think it's right. I think the American people have a right to know. Yeah, exactly. And it, it just I always think of the FBI's um, long running investigation into Crossfire Hurricane, which was of course, the allegation that former President Donald Trump was being blackmailed by the Russians and that he was colluding with them in order to win election in 2016. They spent so many resources on that. They really tugged at every single possible thread. The Durham report has revealed that that investigation was essentially baseless from the get-go and that the FBI engaged in all kinds of misconduct in order to try to reach the conclusion that Trump was guilty. And so to see them leave no stone unturned in a case that was false and then turn around and the Bidens have had seemingly no investigation into their allegedly corrupt foreign business practices, it becomes quite obvious that there's a double standard of justice in our country. Yeah, I think that's really at the heart of this, that we're not seeing folks be investigated for crimes they're pretty large, right? Colluding with foreign governments or the leaders of multinational corporations, taking payments, using your position of influence and power to accumulate more money and influence legislation. It's just corruption by definition. And our justice system has, you know, adversarial taste when it comes to actually investigating corruption. But we have people who are currently sitting in prison. Some people are in prison for life who have done way lesser things, things of lesser consequence in the eyes of ethics, perhaps not in the, lie, in the eyes of law in the United States, but law and justice are not always the same thing. It doesn't make sense to me that we have people that are in prison right now for using marijuana, but we have people that are very high level executives that are responsible for the sickness and death of many people because they've lobbied against regulations and have taken bribes and lobbied members of the DOJ to not investigate them. Like those two things existing in the same justice system 
tells us really who's in power in this country. And it's it's people who have a lot of wealth and who are willing to use it in very corrupt ways. And weeding that out is going to be difficult when the same people responsible for running our system of justice and making legislation are people who have a vested financial interest in keeping things as they are. And so unfortunately, I think a lot of this stuff sounds like legal jargon to a lot of people in the United States. I don't think a lot of people find it terribly interesting, the inner workings of FBI investigations. It's not very sexy stuff. And I think that a consequence of that is less people are involved in maintaining the health of our democracy just because this seems boring and perhaps intentionally so. I think if it was reported on in a way that made it very accessible, perhaps more people would be involved. And I think that that's a failure of legacy media. I'm not uh, a big fan of modern rap music, and I can't remember the, the guy's name who was involved in this, but I saw that his lawyer shared that he had spent three years in prison for essentially the same tax crime that Hunter Biden is uh, pleading guilty to and getting probation. So um, pretty incredible uh, Kodak Black, apparently, is his name. Thank you to the production team here at Rising. <laughs> um, but yeah, exactly to your point, Jessica, about how there are people in prison spending years behind bars for the same or less severe crimes that the first son is getting a pass on. Yeah, and, and we don't really know if this is confirmed. We don't know if the FBI were to investigate this, they would be able to prove it. We don't have that information yet. It makes me feel better that it's out of the hands of the FBI now, but these allegations of collusion between the IRS and the DOJ, uh, would I call it collusion? Would I call it them collaborating on investigation? I don't know, I think language is important, but nevertheless, it seems that they didn't do a good job in thoroughly investigating this, and that's what I take issue with. It could be you know, disproved in a few weeks, but we're not at that point, and the fact that our DOJ and our IRS and the FBI are not taking it as seriously as they should have at the point when they got this whistleblower document is really my my chief concern. Biden, Hunter Biden could be entirely innocent at this point. Uh, I don't know how politically across party lines people feel about this, but it does seem to be unfortunately very partisan. And I wish we could come from a place of just, we need to investigate this more. It could go either way and it doesn't sound good. I think that's a fine place to be without falling strongly one way or the other. And I'm very interested to see what legislation comes out of this to prevent things like this from happening moving forward rather than it just being a partisan fight to take down the Bidens. It is pretty incredible that Republicans who I generally think, I mean, I think all politicians are basically bumbling idiots, have managed to untangle this supposedly faster than the FBI and other investigatory bodies. We're gonna have to leave it there and we'll be back with more Rising after this. In the latest episode of Tucker Carlson's Twitter show, he makes the case that RFK Jr. is winning. A new Economist poll shows that Kennedy is more popular and far less hated than either major party frontrunner. After almost 20 years of being silenced, Bobby Kennedy Jr. is being heard. And why wouldn't he be? Kennedy's theories about vaccines may be right, they may be partially right, they could be even utterly wrong. No one's proved it either way. But what we can say with certainty is that America's medical establishment has beclowned itself for all time. Its official positions on vaccines, psychiatric drugs, puberty blockers, reassignment surgeries, a long list of other politically fashionable priorities 
have no connection whatsoever to legitimate science. It's all effectively witchcraft. At the annual meeting of the American Medical Association in Chicago last week, for example, delegates issued a statement attacking the body mass index as a tool of, quote, racist exclusion, which has caused historical harm. Next year, they will denounce thermometers and stethoscopes. They're insane. Compared to them, Bobby Kennedy is a mainstream figure. And people understand that. That's why he's winning. Wall Street Journal reporter Eliza Collins tweeted yesterday, JFK Jr. stood in front of a statue of President Kennedy at the site marking his uncle's first stop in the 1960 campaign. Then he defended his claim that a contain contaminant in water might be causing people to identify as transgender. Semaphore reporter Dave Weigel tweeted in reply, for who is wondering the Biden admin is trying to limit the use of that chemical and most opposition is coming from Republicans. Weigel shared the Kennedy campaign statement on Biden's push, quote, Mr. Kennedy is a strong advocate of restrictions on atrazine. He applauds the Biden administration's move and favors even stronger restrictions. Not much disagreement between them here. Kennedy just talks about it more. Semaphore reporter Dave Weigel joins us now to discuss. So, Dave, I can't help but mention that, of course, this was a claim that goes back to the days of Alex Jones at Infowars talking about the water turning the frogs gay. Now, somehow, the political parties or partisan factions have flipped on who is taking atrazine seriously. I mean, what is going on here? Yeah, and that's a good example of that. A lot of what Kennedy is running on when it comes to environmental regulation, and remember, that's that's how he got into vaccine skepticism. That's how he got into the issues that, that censored him, was through environmental lawsuits protecting uh, the climate, cleaning up water supplies. Uh, Democrats do that stuff. Where they disagree is on the implications that, like, like with Jones, that the chemicals in this water supply are the reason the gender dysphoria exists, for one. That is not proven. That there's studies about frogs. There's not studies about how it affects humans. Uh, but Kennedy, I think, has has picked up, you might even say, the popular side of the argument and saying, it's not just these chemicals are bad and poisonous that we need to take them out of the, the water supply. It's that they might even be responsible for gender dysphoria. That is, that is, I think, a, a position, as you correctly said, that was, that was uh, you didn't say fringes, but I, mean, I can say Alex Jones, somebody who's been demonetized, kicked off YouTube. It's a pretty, pretty fringe position, an example of something that Kennedy has elevated into the president's world. So is Biden not talking about it? Do you think a, a signal that he finds a, a less important issue? Because it sounds like RFK Jr. has been you know, pleased with the Biden administration taking the use of atrazine seriously. So is this a, a distinction between the two candidates? Or do you think RFK mm -hmm. Jr. talks about it just in a way that lands with more voters? I think it's the latter. Uh, the point I was making, because I didn't see any more voters in the campaign what they thought, uh, was that the current Republican Party, for uh, whoever might be the biggest voice in the room at the moment, uh, it, it does believe in deregulation. It does take, uh, in this case, the side of you know, the agricultural lobby and, and, and the farm farm bureau that want to be used, want to be able to use herbicides that contain this chemical. Uh, it takes their side. It wants to get rid of red tape. It wants to get rid of the waters of the United States, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the Biden administration, like the Obama administration, like Democrats really in the last 50 years, yeah, believes in regulation, but it does not believe in, I mean, it wouldn't come from this, but it, it doesn't believe in the implications that I think, in great example here, that it gets people excited. I mean, if, you, if you tell a room of people, hey, there's this chemical that, uh, that we think is a little bit dangerous and farmers are using it in Iowa, maybe people's eyes don't, don't perk up. 
if you say, and we think it might be causing gender dysphoria, then they perk up. And that, that is the thing I think, just object uh, to what Tucker Carlson was talking about, getting the media's attention, breaking through the veil, uh, sorry, getting the people's attention past the media veil, that is what Kennedy has been doing. Stuff that really you could find on the internet 15 years ago, but you maybe weren't even finding, definitely we're not finding in a presidential campaign, we're not finding in a CNN town hall, things like that. Democrats are not running on that on that harm, that possible harm, that alleged harm from this chemical. They just believe in environmental regulation and the way that Kennedy has has talked about it. I think good example of how he's saying something that might appeal to conservatives who are not interested, or when they hear when they hear the EPA is doing something, their instinct is, well, that must be oppressing people's rights to to farm. Yeah, I want to bring in a little bit more of the specifics of what RFK Jr. is saying so we can hear directly from him. He talked about this on the Jordan Peterson podcast, saying that chemicals in drinking water can impact, quote, sexual dysphoria. Let's listen. I see these huge levels of depression and despair, uh, loneliness in kids. And I don't think that there's a single cause to it. Um, and I think blaming it on, you know, depression about climate is probably oversimplistic. And in fact, I think a lot of the problems we see in kids and particularly boys, it's probably underappreciated um, that uh, how much of that is coming from chemical exposures, including a lot of the sexual dysphoria that we're seeing. They, I mean, they're swimming through a soup of toxic chemicals today, and many of those are endocrine disruptors. There's atrazine throughout our water supply. Atrazine, by the way, if you in a lab put atrazine in a tank full of frogs, it will chemically castrate and force, forcibly feminize every frog in there and 10% of the frogs, the male frogs will, uh, will turn into fully viable females able to produce viable eggs. If it's doing that to frogs, it could, it, there's a lot of other evidence that it's doing it to human beings as well. Matt Iglesias tweeted, Trump turned your kids trans by weakening Clean Water Act rules. We want to add claims that chemicals cause sexual dysphoria are not proven. But Dave, I know it sounds conspiratorial, but I remember, you know, years ago, people were debating about whether fluoride in the water was good for your kids. There's been a ton of movement on the right about seed oils and soy and, and all kinds of other things related to nutrition. So it kind of makes me wonder, is food the new front of politics? Well, you're right that this was a shift. If, if, if I was, if I landed in Marin County, California in 1998, and I started talking to people about why are so many kids allergic to peanuts now? Why is there so much more depression? Why is autism increased? It was a very popular discourse among liberals uh, and people on the left. But look, we all know that the companies are dumping chemicals in the water. That's got to be behind this. The Democratic Party has adopted that as policy. They want to get as many chemicals as possible under the water. It's a, it's a scandal uh, when we find a company who's dumping chemicals and want to be regulated. But what happened, and, and really was, I, I think Carlson points this out, super, probably supercharged this, um, is that things flipped. Uh, liberals and, left, and, and I think so largely we could say, look at polling people on the left, believe in the CDC. They believe when the government scientists say something that is accurate. If you're suing in court, the judge is going to say the same thing. Hey, this, this plaintiff says something about this chemical, but I checked the CDC and they say it's not true. Uh, but on the right, that, that skepticism has, has mushroomed. And that is what Kennedy is doing. Uh, I mean, I, his polling has been pretty stable. It's not clear he's picking up people. What he's doing is really resurrecting this line of thought that was very popular among liberals before COVID. Uh, really, the kind of, I would say, even pushing it back before that, the vaccine 
skeptic movement. Very popular on the left, very popular in California. You look back at where vaccine hesitance was the highest when you know, mothers and their kids get vaccinated. It was in liberal areas until the Trump era. Uh, and, and that is what, that's what Sandy's talking about. He's, I think, forced it to some extent into the, into the presidential race. Uh, it was a legitimate issue. It's not being seen as a legitimate issue anymore. But what happens if you're the president and you're getting past the mainstream media filter by going on a very popular podcast, Peterson has 7 million subscribers, you can get this into the conversation again. I mean, whatever happens to Kennedy, this is one of the goals he had that he's succeeding on, is changing the discussion and reintroducing topics that were censored for a lot of media for, for a very long time. And some of them were censored, I think, for good reasons, because people, people were looking at the data and saying, this is incorrect. You cut this part of the quote out. You cut this, this research out. It's a Wild West has a pejorative sense to it, but it's a bit more, it is a bit more of a Wild West now. You cannot uh, stop information from getting out there if all the networks say we're not going to print it. You can go on a podcast, it's very popular, and people react as we're reacting right now, as Democrats react to Kennedy. Unfortunately, we're completely yeah. out of time, but Dave Weigel from oh, Shadow 4, yeah. thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, thank you. More rising after this. In a second win this week for the trans community, a Florida judge ruled Wednesday that the state's ban on Medicaid coverage of gender-affirming health care is unconstitutional. According to Axios, plaintiffs sued the state after it enacted the ban last summer. But Judge Robert Hinkle found Florida's rules are not consistent with the Constitution and violate federal law. Under Hinkle's orders, the state will have to resume coverage of hormone therapy and puberty blockers. Meanwhile, some trans patients in Tennessee are on alert after being put on notice that the Vanderbilt University Medical Center is sharing their personal information with the Tennessee Attorney General's office. The LGBTQ community is bewildered at the state's inquiry into the trans community. You are supposed to have a right to privacy and you are supposed to have a right to health care and to be able to trust your doctor. And no one for any purposes should ever have that trust misguided or misused just because of state interest in politics. The attorney general's office maintains it needs this information as part of a medical billing investigation. So it does sound quite fishy. I've worked for research groups when I was in data-driven policy research labs where we were handling very sensitive, personally identifiable government information. Usually what happens when this information is transferred is that it's made anonymous. And the, the prospect that it was not in this case is a bit concerning. A lot of research happens at private universities. And so folks aren't, aren't really feeling safe when that data is being transferred and potentially used by governments that are not particularly friendly towards their community. I understand the concern there. And I think everyone should be concerned whenever someone's transferring sensitive data and potentially using it in ways that it was not intended to be used for once it was acquired. I think that's a huge civil liberties issue. Yeah, I don't disagree. I certainly don't want the government having too many of my private medical records. And especially considering how easy it is apparently for these data breaches to happen where outside parties get access to information as it's transferred digitally, I don't have a problem with these transgender patients launching an inquiry into why exactly their data was shared and the potential security issues related to that.
Yeah, I, I think in regard to the, the, the earlier part of, of this reporting here on the trans community, the, the fact that judges are ruling on gender affirming health care is kind of interesting to me. Because when I think of gender affirming care, I do see it as something that is elective. And it's very hard for me to consider, you know, a defense of spending public dollars on that when there are people that are being denied coverage that is necessary to save their lives. So I understand that criticism quite well. I can also understand why a judge might decide that it is, you know, unconstitutional, that it is someone's right to privacy to maintain, you know, that this is something that is medically necessary for them. This is something that they are going through. It's not something for the government to look into or make a judgment on. But when I think of private insurance companies, I, I don't see them covering gender affirming care for the purpose that it is medically necessary. And I think that's a, a really interesting conversation to have because I do see mental health care coverage as, you know, medically necessary. And I can see a world where someone experiencing, you know, gender dysphoria, someone who identifies as transgender saying this is deeply affecting my mental health. I'm experiencing depression because I cannot transition and then therefore it being ruled medically necessary. Do you need a note from a psychiatrist to receive this kind of care? I can see us getting into a space where that would make sense. Yeah, this Medicaid case does raise a lot of important questions about the way that transgender health care or therapeutics are discussed because a large part of the transgender community will claim that these are life-saving treatments because it alleviates whatever mental health concerns or gender dysphoria they may have. But the reality is that the science is still very much unproven on that aspect. There have not been any good blind studies of individuals who have gender dysphoria who undergo treatment and those who don't who have the otherwise same characteristics. Um, and, and the studies that have been done have so many fundamental flaws in them that they don't really tell us anything about the potential efficacy of these puberty blockers, hormone therapy, and surgical sex changes. And we do know that there are tons of negative side effects. Um, so I think that the U.S. should be following the European model where Britain's NHS, or England's NHS rather, just released guidance on puberty blockers, for example, where they say that those will only be prescribed in clinical research settings, and they won't be prescribed as a matter of course to kids who are suffering from gender dysphoria. And tons of other European countries have followed suit. France, uh, the Netherlands, um, I believe Denmark, have all decided to pull back a little bit on the idea of gender-affirming care, particularly for minors, because it is basically an experimental treatment at this point. And I think it's odd that Medicaid would be covering something that doesn't have proven benefits at this point. Um, and I am uh, imagining that this case and other cases where um, in Arkansas, for example, the ban on gender care for youth was uh, overturned by a judge, these will probably end up going all the way to the Supreme Court. Right. And I think it's unfortunate that many people who are taking action on the side of actually regulation on this front are people who are typically against the regulation of corporations in the United States and people who are fans of the free market. But when it comes to transgender issues, suddenly a lot of folks that don't usually care about regulation care about regulation. And that's coming from a place of being fearful of the, the transgender community and really feeling like you don't want to live in a society where there are a lot of visible transgender folks uh, and, and people who are just not cisgender and don't fit the expectations 
expectations of gender that we have. I don't think that's particularly helpful. I do think approaching this from the perspective of we want people who want this care to receive it safely. I think that makes sense. And that being explored in Europe, I think is huge. But I also do believe that a lot of countries in Europe have a more traditional view when it comes to gender than a lot of the major cities in the United States. And I think that could be at play there as well. Just the fact that the research is happening, I think is good. We get into a weird ethical territory when we think about some kind of randomized control trial we could run where we have a group of folks who do identify as transgender and we randomly select that half of the people in that pool receive gender affirming care or puberty blockers. And then we assess the different outcomes. I think we could see folks signing up for that kind of treatment, but I do think that there are, are, are definitely a group of people who are very devoted to their transition that would not sign up for something like this because they want the treatment so badly that they're willing to take the experimental treatment or puberty blockers or things that we don't really know the long-term side effects of. I think we would have the, the very devoted folks who are very sure of themselves and their path possibly not included in that study. And so there are all kinds of issues with conducting research on humans, especially when we're dealing with social issues, not just medical issues. So I think it's gonna be always a difficult and precarious medical space. Yeah, that was one of the biggest drawbacks of a major study out of a Seattle gender clinic because they tried to adopt a blind study where they had a group that underwent puberty blockers and a group that didn't. But the problem was so many people in the group that didn't ended up dropping out of the study, um, which would suggest that it was because their gender dysphoria improved or, or their mental health improved. And so the, uh, the comparisons couldn't be made properly because the control group was so much smaller in the end of the study than the group of people who did undergo gender, uh, the gender treatments with the puberty blockers. Meanwhile, famed author J.K. Rowling ruffled more feathers on Twitter yesterday after she weighed in on Elon Musk's ban of the terms cis and cisgender on the platform. The Harry Potter author tweeted, quote, Cis is ideological language, signifying belief in the unfalsifiable concept of gender identity. You have a perfect right to believe in unprovable essences that may or may not match the sexed body, but the rest of us have a right to disagree and to refuse to adopt your jargon. To which Musk replied, quote, exactly. So what do you think? Is uh, cisgender a slur, Jessica? I definitely don't think it's a slur. I'm not sure what, what Elon Musk's point is. He uses really vague language with a lot of this stuff, but to say that, that gender identity is, is unfalsifiable is very interesting um, for him to confirm J.K. Rowling's sentiments there. It's interesting because it seems that this argument could be made, whatever gender, gender identity you have, you are, regardless of your gender assigned or sex assigned at birth, right? The same argument could be taken in the direction of being, you know, pro-trans rather than just uh, using the word cisgender affirms trans folks exist and therefore should not be used. I think it's maybe more inclusive to just say gender is gender, whatever you identify as is what I'll call you. It seems to, to simplify the problem in the direction of social progress, in, in my opinion, rather than to say that there's a distinct difference between someone who is cisgender and someone who is transgender. And just to say a woman is a woman, a man is a man, what you identify with is, is what I'll call you. That works for me, but I don't think cisgender is a slur. Yeah, I think what, uh, what J.K. Rowling was trying to say is that cisgender, the term itself, 
perhaps um, gives weight to the idea that someone can change their gender or that uh, gender is necessarily divorced from sex, which I think critics of the transgender movement would say they don't agree with. Um, I know that recent poll also found that 60% of Americans believe that it's morally wrong for people to change their gender. So adopting the term cis or cisgender to refer to people who are basically normal um, in regards to um, their behavior and um, their relationship with their sex assigned at birth, as you put it, or their body um, is something that rubs a lot of people the wrong way. Yeah, to me, it seems like J.K. Rowling feels like she's getting left behind by clinging to this old idea of what gender is and the use of cisgender is something that makes her feel uncomfortable because she's not willing to get with the times. That's honestly how I feel about J.K. Rowling's adversity towards the term cisgender. But we're going to have to leave it there. But we do have more rising after this. Senior U.S. military officials are admitting that the Ukrainian counteroffensive is not meeting expectations on any front. Sources told CNN this week that Ukraine's push is having less success and Russian forces are showing more competence than Western assessments expected. Despite what the headlines in the Western media may suggest, Ukraine's chances of victory this year are, quote, vanishingly small, as retired Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis and friend of the show recently wrote. Joining us now to elaborate is Lieutenant Colonel Davis himself. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So this seems like a relatively new assessment. General Mark Milley has recently sort of provided more sober analysis of the chances of Ukraine winning this war. What has led to this diminished optimism? Uh, what's happened on the battlefield, the actual results of the fighting, uh, but it's, it's a little concerning to me because, I mean, I've been on your show many times this year. We've been talking about this very issue about the, the capacity of the Russian defenses and the uh, capacity of the Ukrainian armed forces to actually attack into it. And, and for very fundamental and practical reasons, this outcome was it should have been entirely predictable. So it shouldn't have caught anyone by surprise. But it does appear that it's it has uh, you know, as, as you saw that CNN report there, and that just shows that there is some concern uh, that they're now coming to realize that the capacity to win the war on the ground for Ukraine uh, does not appear to even be there, nor will it be for the foreseeable future. And, and it remains to be seen if that now changes the calculus on both the United States and the Western allies and how we approach this. So how much of this shift do you credit to the recent flooding in Ukraine and how much of it do you credit to Ukraine just not having the military capacity to fight off Russian forces? I, I actually think the, the flooding is completely inconsequential to the fighting. It didn't help it. It didn't hurt it. Uh, it was a horrible ecological disaster and just devastated a lot of people's lives, but it doesn't really affect the fighting because it's really all in different directions uh, and what's going on there. The, the real problem uh, and, and really part of it's math. I, I mean, according to General Milley, last week, he said that there was somewhere around 300,000 Russians defending within the borders of Ukraine along that 1,000-kilometer front. Into that, you're, you're trying to launch an attack force of somewhere between, depending on who you want to believe, 30 and 50,000 Ukrainian troops. And, of course, as we've also talked about many times, that's a hodgepodge of, of, of different Western countries, Soviet stuff that they've had a long time. 
that they've had some minimal training on, and then you're trying to go into a defense that's had more than half a year and nine months in some places to prepare for that offensive. Uh, and, and you're just asking something of the Ukraine side that's just fundamentally unfair to even think that they're going to succeed. And so far, that's precisely how it's worked out on the ground. We learned yesterday as well that Ukraine had apparently struck a key bridge leading to Crimea. At least that's what Russia said. At this point, do you think the Ukrainians have the appetite or the ability to give up the idea of taking back Crimea before they go to the table for negotiations? Well, that, I mean, that, they're loath to do that. I mean, they have hated it. I, I believe as soon as recently as uh, uh, 48 hours ago, Zelensky again emphatically repeated that he's not even going to negotiate, not even going to talk to Russia until all of their troops are gone out of all of Ukrainian territory, which, which is, of course, is just not going to happen. It's not realistic in the, in the least. So uh, up to this point, they have not yet acknowledged that. And as you can tell by the the continued just wave after wave of assaults uh, on, on several places, at least five on the along the front lines. Ukraine continues to attack as they're doing again today. So they have not given up anything, and they're still just trying to beat their head against that brick wall. Uh, the question is going to be how many more times can they hit that brick wall before they lose the striking power? They don't have enough to, to conduct offensive operations. Then you have a separate problem in that now then they become vulnerable to a Russian counterattack because they may not have enough offensive capacity to even hold off against that. But that's that's still to be seen. So we had former President Barack Obama in an interview with CNN's Christian Amanpour on Thursday defend his position uh, with regard to Russia's annexation of Crimea back in 2014. And he maintained that the circumstances were just not the same as they are today and that Ukraine back then was not the same as the one we see today. Colonel Davis, what do you make of that response from President Obama, former President Obama? Well, as, you, as uh, this show knows, I've, I've been a, a pretty frequent critic of, of uh, President Obama's foreign policy on a number of issues, uh, especially the both the Iraq and the Afghanistan wars. But uh, I think he's probably right on this one, uh, frankly, because, look, we have to recognize that in 2014, there almost was no uh, Ukrainian army. I think that they had like eight or 10,000 total troops that were virtually untrained and they didn't have you know, a, a coherent set of military gear, et cetera. They spent the next eight years building one, and that's the reason why they have genuinely been uh, very effective at uh, continuing to fight against their much larger neighbor over these 16 months. But at the time, I mean, we, look, we shouldn't have gone into the war in 2014. We shouldn't have done it now. So I, I actually wish we had would have uh, done the similar thing to what Obama did then and not become so decisively engaged that we basically have perpetuated this war now for 16 months, and you see, with uh, no rational reason to expect that the Ukraine side is going to succeed, yet we give them enough weapons to uh, hold off defeat and to give them hope for victory. But I argue that there that that's false hope, and all it's done is caused hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian deaths and the absolute wiping off the map of a number of their cities. And, and there's no hope for that. And I hope that we now, with this offensive operation, having run into a buzzsaw that we can maybe change our policies. Yeah, I'd like to follow up on that point because the United States, of course, has offered tons of weapons and, and financial resources to the Ukrainians. But the common narrative from our politicians is that if we just give them more money, then maybe they'll eventually succeed. Do you think there's any dollar amount or I guess what would the dollar amount that's worth it be in order to help them 
have some shot at victory? Does that even exist? I think that if there was, if you could say, hey, look, they are right on the edge of success here. And if we just help them a little bit here and it'll push it over the top, you know, there's a rational reason that they could succeed. That would be a different conversation. And then perhaps it makes sense to have that, uh, you know, that kind of support. There's nothing even close to that, though. It would take years, years to develop a, a genuine offensive capacity to, to be able to drive Russia out of Ukraine. And, of course, during the same period of time, you'd have the Russians building up even stronger. So any way you want to look at it, there is no rational military path for Ukraine to win back its territories. And, of course, Russia has the nuclear trump card. So even in the event that somehow you did take years to do that and you started succeeding, now you have the risk of nuclear escalation, which is uh, un no way, shape, or form in American national interest. So any way you want to look at it, our best interest lie in bringing this uh, our, uh, war to a conclusion as soon as possible. What do you make of the common criticism that folks have that there's an obligation to fight off Russia as an imperial power? There's a general understanding that it's an unjust war being waged on behalf of Russia, that it's an imperial action. Uh, and I see that from the perspective of does the U.S. involvement make that better or worse? Are there other avenues to which we can address actions like this? And of course, ad addressing it from a perspective of international solidarity against imperial actions on the global stage, it's complicated by the reality that Russia has a permanent position on the Security Council and has veto power. It makes it really difficult to solve these sort of situations when they play out on the global stage. What do you make of, of a peaceful path forward, if possible at all? Well, I think the word you just used there was the operative one, and that's reality. There is uh, an oppression, a, pre a preference that we have and the, the world that we would like to see to where no one uses force to force anybody else to do anything. There's no imperial ambitions and all, all of that sort of thing. And those are desires, and many of them are very good. But there's also the reality of, uh, that exists on the ground. And, and even though we desire a certain outcome, if the fundamental building blocks that exist, that means both military power, economic power, history, geography, all of those kinds of things have to factor in there. And if you can't get the outcome that you prefer based on all of those factors, then you have to use different actions. And you have to take means sometimes you have to not even get what you want. And unfortunately, we haven't gotten we haven't graduated to that element. We're not dealing in the reality we're dealing in the preference and we keep trying to force it onto the geography onto the history and all those things and it's just not fitting and the longer we try to force something into to a round peg in a square hole where it'll never fit people are dying and things are failing and, and our security continues to stay at risk we have to move more to the diplomatic side to where we acknowledge that sometimes reality means we don't get everything that we want but we can still use our power and our influence to make things, you know, adequate or, or good enough. And until we get to that point here, we're going to continue to be frustrated. And so are our allies. Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis, thank you so much for helping us break this down. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Always my pleasure. The deadline passed on a law that binds the White House to tell Congress everything it knows about the origin of the pandemic but here we are, still impatiently waiting. Reporter at U.S. Right to Know, Emily Kopp, is here with us to discuss the latest developments on this front. Welcome, Emily. Hey, great to be here. 
So tell us, what do you think? Will the Biden administration ever release these declassified documents? Yes, I think eventually they will be released. Um, they're legally bound to. Um, but the declassification deadline happened to coincide with this trip that Secretary of State Antony Blinken took to Beijing um, and an attempt by the U.S. to cool off um, tensions with China. So, um, so presumably that has something to do with the delay. Um, I will say, too, that I think part of the delay could be related to the fact that the intelligence community has failed in an enormous way as it relates to this virus. Um, and my speculation would be that the same intelligence community that failed to warn us that this virus was coming is now gearing up to tell us that it failed to find the origins. Um, and and that's really unacceptable. So can go into more detail on that. Do you think there's also a bit of embarrassment on behalf of public health officials who started out the first few months of the pandemic claiming that this was a naturally occurring virus that was zoonotic in origin, and now the consensus has kind of shifted around the idea of this leaking from the Wuhan Institute of Virology? That could certainly be a factor. And don't forget that the Office of the Director of National Intelligence also said that this was a natural virus. And what we've learned through um, Freedom of Information Act requests is that the people who were advising the intelligence community around the same time that it said that, that the, the uh, intelligence community agrees with the scientific consensus that the virus is not natural, either had ties to the Wuhan Institute of Virology or were part of that infamous teleconference um, with Anthony Fauci in February 2020, um, in which they went from saying this looks awfully engineered and we're concerned that this came from a lab to doing a 180 within days and saying that that idea was crackpot. So, um, so I think that's part of the intelligence community's failures, right? The fact that they, as they were trying to assess whether or not this was a lab origin in 2020 when the evidence was the freshest and um, our capacity for digging up information was probably the greatest. It was leaning on people like Ralph Barrick, a coronavirologist who worked directly with the Wuhan Institute of Virology to make viruses more dangerous. It leaned on people like Robert Gary, one of those virologists who um, participated in that teleconference with Anthony Fauci. It leaned on Christian Anderson, another virologist who met with Anthony Fauci. And it consulted with Anthony Fauci, the um, head of the agency that underwrote the Wuhan Institute of Virology to the tune of millions of dollars. So, um, so yeah, I mean, if I had to speculate here, I would say that the intelligence community is taking its time to declassify this information because it's going to reflect very poorly on the intelligence community. So if we go back to 2020, when this virus first emerged, when the global community first became aware of a novel coronavirus coming out of Wuhan, the intelligence community took China's word for it that it wasn't a transmissible virus, that it wasn't spreading human to human for three weeks. Um, which you know doesn't sound like a long period of time, but when you're talking about the need for contact tracing and the need to make sure a virus doesn't spread globally and become a pandemic that lasts for years, that three weeks is really critical. Um, and so, so we know that the intelligence community failed in a major way there, um, and you know, is 
telling um, news organizations like the New York Times that it simply is not capable of coming up with an assessment because, um, of the origins. And um, that's a major failure too, because we were either um, not prioritizing the Wuhan Institute of Virology for intelligence collection, or we were funding research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology as a sort of harebrained method of intelligence collection to learn what Chinese scientists were working on, and it monumentally backfired. So, um, so that's my sense of why it's taking so long, because there's very few ways that you can parse this that, you know, saves the reputation of the intelligence community when it comes to their core job of protecting the American public from foreign threats. Um, you know, we often talk about the failures of the intelligence community as it relates to 9-11. We had, you know, periods of time during this pandemic where we were losing the amount of people that we lost in 9-11 every single day. So, um, so I think that's an unfortunate dynamic of, you know, this um, mystery around the origins of COVID is that so much of the information we're getting is filtered through the two most powerful governments in the world, you know, China and the U.S. Is it your belief that in these classes or declassified soon to be files that there was a conclusive finding about the origin of, of COVID-19? Or is it your belief that because they failed early on to investigate that it's unlikely that there is any conclusive evidence of the origin of COVID-19? You know, I won't pretend to have any, you know, special insight into their thinking, um, but I have seen a lot of public records that suggest to me that they don't want to know. Um, so in the last few days, there's been a lot of talk about these Wuhan Institute of Virology researchers who became sick in the fall of 2019. This is before the wet market outbreak. So that's strong evidence of a lab origin. Um, for some reason, the intelligence community doesn't find that relevant to the origins of COVID. Um, and that intelligence wasn't processed until these investigators with the State Department dug it up kind of in late the fall of 2020. Um, and I've seen emails between these State Department investigators and people at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and at um, the Department of Health and Human Services, which of course funded the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And they got a lot of pushback for digging for more information about a possible lab origin from those agencies. And it's also not clear to me that some of these intelligence agencies have updated their assessments in the last two years. So we know that, you know, the Biden administration ordered a 90 day review back in 2021. Um, to my knowledge, only the Department of Energy has um, looked at new evidence and updated its assessment. Um, and again, that is an, an enormous failure. And, um, you know, the New York Times had a story where some uh, intelligence officials were saying that um, Beijing doesn't want to know the origins and is not looking. And so there are no secrets to dig up. And to me, that seems like some projection <laughs> by the United States, which doesn't want to know um, because of our potential culpability. And, you know, to me, it doesn't seem credible that, you know, the intelligence community spies on millions of Americans, but doesn't spy on the you know, Americans who are souping up viruses 
in Chinese labs and in Chinese labs with military ties. To me, that just doesn't, it doesn't pass the smell test. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. Has the Biden administration even acknowledged that it missed the deadline for releasing these files? Not to my knowledge, no. And I, I know that they're getting a lot of um, pressure on Capitol Hill. And, and to my knowledge, I don't think anyone on Capitol Hill has heard anything from them either. So. Wow. All right. Good to know. Well, thank you, Emily Kopp, for helping us break all of this down. We'll be back with more Rising after this. have spoken and they are calling on podcaster and famed UFC commentator Joe Rogan to referee the supposed billionaire battle between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. The Twitter CEO appears to be game, replying to a Twitter user's post with the fire emoticon. So to be clear, there's no real beef between the two, but excitement at the prospect of seeing the two tech rivals duke it out has been mounting over the past few days after Musk challenged Zuckerberg to a cage fight, a proposition to Meta's CEO was happily accepted, asking for a location. But regardless of if they actually both square up, both of these bosses have played it up on social media, taking jabs at each other, further fueling the fans. So Zuckerberg, Amber, has some jujitsu training. He's 5'7 and 154 pounds. Elon is 6'1 and 187 pounds. <laughs> I am all for this. I would love to watch this go down. Absolutely. When I said earlier on this show that I love billionaires doing stupid things with their money, this is why. Because the entertainment value, some, I mean, sometimes it's for good advancement of society and exploration. In this case, this is just pure down and dirty entertainment. And I don't think anyone is obsessed with either of these individuals. I know the right has kind of made Elon Musk their new like Lord God or whatever. Um, I'm, I'm not in that camp. I like what the guy's done for Twitter, but I wouldn't say I'm his biggest fan in the world. He's got some positions on humanism that I find kind of distasteful. But to see two big tech CEOs go at each other, and do it in a physical fight, I think is hysterical. It's gonna be incredible. To your point about their, uh, their weight class differences, I would find it very, very shocking if Mark Zuckerberg had an iota of a chance in this matchup. Yeah, I don't know. Jiu-Jitsu training goes a long way. I don't know what kind of training Elon Musk has, but he doesn't look like he's got that dog in him. He does not look like he can fight. And so I am very interested to see how, how this goes down. Men used to, to duel to the death for honor. And so I don't know how much they're going to let them really go at each other, given that neither of them have proper training. It would be very unfortunate for there to be a lot of hype for this and for them to abide by rules that are a little bit more strict or protective than the typical cage match. But I'm very excited to see it. I think it says a lot about our society that Conor McGregor is the highest paid athlete. We really like fighting. Um, that tells us a lot about where we're at. But when it's billionaires fighting, I'm all for it. Let them duke it out. Let them duel to the death even. Yeah, I mean, physical fights are kind of a working class tradition. That was how men used to settle their disputes. Well, I guess it was an elite tradition back when it was dueling. But uh, mm -hmm. bar fights are, are obviously a, a long tradition in working in lower middle class communities. And so I don't have a problem with necessarily settling disputes by getting physical 
in a controlled environment. The problem with bar fights is that they can often lead to death due to one errant thrown punch or a bottle to the head. So this seems like a better way of getting out that aggression, but in a way that is controlled and, and perhaps mostly safe. Um, but I, I don't know about the jujitsu because you often hear from these guys who claim that they're black belts in karate and then they get in a street fight and they try to do some spinny kick and the guy grabs their leg and throws them to the ground. It just seems like that's usually something guys say to try to seem tough, but it doesn't really translate to real fighting. Yeah, unfortunately, this is more competition in the tech market than we've had in a long time in the United <laughs> States. But um, I think it speaks to how CEOs view themselves and owners of large companies in the United States. They see themselves as kind of heroes, as leaders, as public figures. They're not just people who are in business to be in business. They want to be people in the public eye, it seems. Is this some kind of, I don't know, advertising ploy for Twitter or Meta? No, I think it is deeply personal. I think they want to be in the public eye and they want attention. That is at the heart of this. And that almost makes me respect them even less than I did before, but at least we get something good out of it in being able to watch the cage fight. I think a lot of people are going to respect them less after they see the flailing limbs and pale stomachs <laughs> that are going to be shown in the arena. Uh, but you mentioned the lack of competition in the tech sector, and it makes me think that there needs to be some higher stakes involved in this fight. How about if Elon Musk wins, then the metaverse has to be broken up, Facebook and Instagram part and go their separate ways. Maybe if Mark Zuckerberg wins, he can uh, maybe make Twitter change their terms of service to more abide by something that he finds palatable. Maybe everybody loses and we get to reform Section 230 or do some other kind of trust busting. But let's raise the stakes a little bit. Let's let the American people get something out of this besides just um, you know one instance of me wanting to pay-per-view. Yeah, and let's have all of the revenue generated from this fight go to grants for small tech startups. I think that's that's a great idea. And they can have some stringent criteria for who gets those grants, but let's actually do something with the revenue that will certainly be generated from this other than line the pockets of Joe Rogan and Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. But I think that's a, a great stake for this fight is whoever wins the other has to break up their their tech company or Elon Musk in his in his case it should honestly uh, be Tesla and SpaceX and Twitter. He should have to to kind of break up his his ownership and say of of his largest companies. It's a little bit trickier with the the antitrust laws with someone like Elon, but I think this is completely fair. And Joe Rogan is probably capable of meeting with his team and coming up with some kind of fair stakes or outcome that benefits society instead of just, you know, whoever wins gets to say that they beat the other in the fight. Let's have some real stakes and consequences. We know they have more money than they know what to do with. Having this be the kind of thing where they bet on the fight. Okay, maybe they have to donate money somewhere, but I think we need some lasting consequences about their respective corporations. I do like the idea of it being a charity matchup. We've had charity golf tournaments for ages now. And it kind of reminds me of Capital One's The Match, which is obviously a, a corporate nightmare. I hate things that are named after corporations, especially in sporting events. Um, but the Capital One's The Match always has a couple of PGA Tour pros and then some celebrities. So in the past, they've had Charles Barkley play in it. 
Um, I, I, I think they had Phil Mickelson a couple years ago alongside him. And it's always great entertainment. They have a, a Super Bowl winning quarterbacks. And these people have the opportunity to kind of take out these under the current grudges that they have just by being some of the best athletes in the world and kind of thinking they're all better than uh, than one another. So I'd like to see this in a, in a more high-stakes scenario, which is the physical violence aspect of this. There's also another twist in the scenario. Apparently, Jordan Peterson wants the two tech giants to fight naked. Um, I don't know about that. I think that we all should be spared the sight that that would be, Jessica. And also, is, what is Jordan Peterson doing even suggesting that? It sounds a little gay. Yeah, Jordan Peterson, I think. Uh, why are you thinking about that? What's going on up there? Uh, you could have kept that to yourself. Nobody pried that information out of you, sir, that that's immediately where your mind went when you thought of two men in a cage together. I don't want to see that. Many people don't want to see that. Um, Jordan Peterson's kind of a strange guy. Sounds like Kermit the Frog to me. But I think what's going on with this competition is billionaires have had a, a quite an easy time at, a, at accumulating more money, right? Once you have that amount of capital, you can pay people who are very well informed about how to invest, what a smart investment would be to have the highest return. You can amass more and more capital much more easily. And to have a society that's based on this idea of individualism and competition, once you get to the point of having the amount of money and control that these two have, what do you have left to compete over? They're bored. They want to compete with each other and have more wealth than each other. But at some point, that's not enough. And they've maxed out their capacity to accumulate more capital or create more flows for more capital. So what do they compete with? Each other and their fists in a cage match in Vegas. It's like this is what happens when you reach the, the pinnacle of our society and how we define success and you have this much wealth. You get back to the most basic level of competition that humans have, which is just brawling with fists. And so it's kind of a, a full circle moment for what it means to live in a competitive society and that that's how we define success. There's something very interesting psychologically about this. Yeah, I'll tell you what, Jessica, I am amenable to the idea that once you accumulate some wealth and you get to the point where you're basically just earning money on all of your investments, Let's uh, let's make people fight for their status or, or to keep their status. Let's let's make them actually work for it on a physical level. I think maybe we'd see some interesting cream rise to the rise to the top. I mean, Alexander Hamilton competed in 10 duels throughout his life and, uh, you know, ultimately didn't end so well for him. But I think when we look back at those days when duels were the norm, we tended to have maybe more uh, naturally talented and uh, well-rounded individuals becoming the elites, as opposed to now we kind of have a lot of people who have inherited wealth or are able to get these massive investments from people um, due to personal connections. And I would like to see a little bit more of a meritocracy, not just on the intellectual front, but on the physical front too. I think that still should matter for society. Sounds like this is what America's ready for. In the fall of an empire, we have gladiators and bread and circuses right. only. We don't have much of the bread part due to inflation. <laughs> but we've got to leave it there. We've got more rising for you all after this. The Supreme Court is out with a new ruling today. 
Texas and Louisiana do not have authority to challenge the Biden administration's guidelines for when to deport migrants from the country, handing a win to President Biden on immigration policy. In an 8-1 decision, the Supreme Court determined the two states lacked the standing to sue over one of the Department of Homeland Security's latest directives. Texas and Louisiana's lawsuit alleged that the federal government did not have the authority to make such determinations to who is deported. Justice Brett Kavanaugh wrote for the majority, the states essentially want the federal judiciary to order the executive branch to alter its arrest policy so as to make more arrests. On the policy, Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said back in 2021, quote, we will focus our efforts on the greatest threats while also recognizing that the majority of undocumented non-citizens who have been here for many years and who have contributed positively to our country's well-being are not priorities for removal. So Justice Kavanaugh wrote the opinion here, and to see this court rule 8-1 is something that I really didn't see coming out of uh, this session from the Supreme Court, but it seems to me that they see this really as a matter of federal versus state power and have ruled in the favor of federal power, which isn't always how they see issues, and this is possibly a ruling that's just specific to this case, but we've, we've seen a lot of discussion around what is in is not constitutional in the favor of states rights and us revisiting a conversation around federalism and how much power the federal government should have but it seems to me that they do want to keep decisions when it comes to immigration policy in the hands of the federal government rather than giving more of that jurisdiction to the states for them to make determinations on who should be arrested and how many people should be arrested when it comes to detaining migrants yeah, that was kind of the fundamental snare that the state's suing ran into here. Um, immigration law is not like environmental law. Um, and in a lot of environmental law, you are allowed as a state or as a person um, to sue based on perceived harm. Basically, there's a clear delineation of who is allowed to go after the federal government for policies and the perceived harm that they cause them, whereas immigration law is not so clear cut. There isn't currently legislation that really lays out the path for a state to be able to sue on alleged lack of enforcement of immigration policy. Um, but it is important to remind that the Supreme Court did not rule on the merits of the law itself or the merits of Biden's uh, directives. And they kind of left it open, saying that you know, if somebody who does have the standing to sue, if somebody who can uh, can make the case that they have received harm from this uh, were to move forward with a separate lawsuit, that perhaps they would consider the idea that Biden is not properly upholding immigration law. Right. Yeah. Very interesting that they decided to take the case, which they have a, a lot of discretion over what cases they take. I mean, they get hundreds of, of cases that they can pick from annually. And it takes a few justices to take an interest in a case for it to be investigated and for them to receive the amicus curiae briefs. And then from there, decide what cases, you know, they're going to hear arguments for before the Supreme Court. So the fact that they chose this case uh, to make clear that, that states can't sue on this grounds is really interesting to me, what kind of precedent they were interested in setting there, because there is some kind of calculation that goes into what cases they hear and what cases they don't hear. 
And I strongly believe that they choose cases for reasons of they believe it's relevant and timely and something that the court needs to make a decision on based on the, the state of our nation, which of course is a political determination. So this idea that the court is not political is not something I, I really believe in because just their determination of which cases to hear has to be by nature, some kind of political decision on their behalf. Whether they do it to help one party or another, or one ideological faction or another, is a different conversation. But it is political in nature to pick priorities in this way and kind of say to the states, you can't sue over something like this. But what they've done in many of their opinions before is say, but bring us a case on this other relevant thing. They've done this when it comes to abortion. They've hinted, Clarence Thomas, when it comes to wanting to hear cases about same-sex marriage, to hear cases about interracial marriage, for them to signal in their, their briefs and in their opinions and their write-ups what cases they would like to hear is something that, that is a big red flag for me, for the Supreme Court to say, please sue on this grounds so we can make a ruling and affirm that this is constitutional in one way or another. That's a very interesting political position for the Supreme Court justices to take. I want to provide a little more context, too, about the law that this is in regards to, because immigration law apparently requires the executive and the, and the Department of Homeland Security to prioritize deportation and removal of certain criminal illegal aliens, meaning people who have crossed the border illegally and have a criminal record or have committed a crime in the United States. And what the Biden administration did is they basically narrowed that authority to a, a smaller subset of criminal illegal aliens, um, claiming that they don't have the ability to get rid of everybody under an expedited process, which I guess doesn't totally not make sense considering just how many people are crossing the border right now. Um, a lot of people have characterized this as a crisis, although the Biden administration has shied away from that term. There's been something like 200,000 illegal crossings every single month since Biden took office. Um, but if federal law does require you to prioritize certain individuals and you decide that you're only going to do, say, half of those, then it stands to reason that you are in violation of federal law. So I do think that there is kind of a signal to conservatives or Republicans here. If you find someone who does have standing to sue to go after Biden for failing to uphold immigration law as the executive, then perhaps we would be willing to take your side on this. Yeah, it, it's very interesting how vague the interpretation of this law could be, or the law is vague, so it can be interpreted in many ways, rather. Just to say that you're prioritizing individuals that are a threat to public safety, it makes it very difficult for folks to determine who that is under the Obama administration. Uh, we had a lot of deportations of folks who had a, a felony conviction. And so there were a lot of people who had lived in the United States who were refugees from other countries like Cambodia who came as children. And they don't speak Khmer, they don't understand the culture in Cambodia, and they were deported many years after even committing a crime. 
And a lot of these these folks joined gangs in places like California, where they arrived in the United States, because they didn't fit in with the culture here, and they didn't really have a full home here. They came as refugees. And so when you join gangs, typically you get caught up in criminal activity and you might get a felony charge at a very young age and then get deported at, at you know, age your, your mid-20s or 30s when Obama's in office. And then you have to be in another country you've never been to before and we're paying for those flights. It just seems to me that drawing this line when it comes to immigration, it's an, it's an impossible thing to implement. And so taking the approach like Texas and Louisiana by saying, you know, we need some some wider criteria than this is I, I'm not sure there's there's ever a perfect way to go about doing this. And I, it seems to me that this is just a call for more specific immigration policy so that it's implementable. I would like to see legislation on immigration policy, definitely, because there is so much room for the executive to basically manipulate and navigate around certain directives and kind of just do whatever they want. There is a legal distinction, though, between um, an, an illegal immigrant and a refugee. A refugee status um, can't really uh, be revoked or a refugee can't be deported in the same way that an illegal immigrant can. Um, so a lot of those cases under the Obama administration were people who claimed to be political refugees but did not actually have the legal status under those programs. And I certainly am not going to excuse someone who joins a gang because they don't feel like they fit in. Um, but I, I understand that there is so many different, I guess, um, ways that various administrations are trying to enforce immigration policy. And it doesn't provide proper continuity for people to understand, am I going to be deported? Am I going to be allowed across the border? And it's part of what's caused the chaos with the current border situation, because there was such a drastic shift in how immigration policy was being enforced from the Trump administration, which was very strict and basically did not allow any illegal immigrants to be released into the United States after crossing the border and being caught by Border Patrol, including asylum seekers. Whereas you get to the Biden administration, there was a deportation moratorium. They ended the Remain in Mexico policy. They blew up the U.S.-Mexico agreement and basically were relying on Title 42 to help them process these expedited removals. Um, so that did send a signal to a lot of people across the border that the border's open for business, come across and you're not going to get in trouble. Um, so I, I understand that there needs to be more continuity and there should be a legislative effort, um, but this has been a disaster for decades at this point, and there doesn't really seem to be an appetite for anyone trying to find some compromise on this issue or even bringing it up for debate. The right talks about it all the time, but I haven't seen them put together a comprehensive immigration package that they would be willing to present in front of the Congress, and I think it's important that they do so. Yeah, it seems that we'll see migration policy continue to wax and wane according to who we have in the highest office, who the administration is, rather than who is the governor of, of respective states trying to sue for more power. Very interesting 8-1 ruling out of the Supreme Court today upholding Biden's migration policy. We're going to have to leave this story here, but we've got more rising for you after this.
member of NASA's team is set to report later this year on what we do and do not know about the evidence for UAPs. Joshua Semeter told BU Today that whistleblower David Grush, quote, must be treated as a credible witness, as with the military aviators who have also come forward with eyewitness accounts of anomalous objects. But without data or material evidence, we are at an impasse on evaluating these claims. Senator also said, I do not know David Grush, but I am well aware of the story. It would be inappropriate for me to speculate on his motives, but one can state objectively that his claims are two steps removed from being earth shattering. Not only has he not shared any verifiable evidence, photographs, artifacts, or any other manner of data, but he also has not personally seen or touched any of these objects he references. In the long history of claims of extraterrestrial visitors, it is the level of specificity that always seems to be missing, according to BU Today. So I don't know how I feel about this. Sounds like Grush uh, was a whistleblower and that reporting from Grush was followed up with reporting from Michael Schellenberger, who got some folks who are close to the matter, members of the military and intelligence community, to corroborate this idea that there are a dozen or more non-human spacecraft, potentially with pilots, I don't think people would risk their security clearance by saying, here's some photos of evidence uh, of this. It would probably be very easy to trace who turned that over. If the government's not willing to do it, all we can rely on really is, is this story being corroborated. And it, it sounds to me like it was, but I'm on the side of wanting to believe the aliens have been here. But Amber, what do you make of this? Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I think that he's kind of trying to put out a massive cope here. Um, the comment particularly about Grush not having seen or felt the objects, therefore he doesn't know if they're real, kind of strike, struck me as a bit odd. I haven't seen or touched Nikki Haley, but I still know that she exists. So <laughs> that one just doesn't do it for me. Um, and especially considering that Michael Schellenberger reporting where he did talk to those individuals who claim that the government has about a dozen uh, non-human crafts in its possession and that potentially they recovered non-human pilots from those crafts, those individuals may not have seen them firsthand, but if they have access to the intelligence that talks about it, then that's good enough for me. Yeah, it's good enough for me as well. I think not everyone is ready to accept that our planet's been visited by some kind of beings from beyond our, beyond Earth, uh, maybe even beyond our galaxy. I think that's uncomfortable information for a lot of people to process. And the initial response would be something defensive, like, well, I'll believe it when I see it. The people who would be familiar with the matter have corroborated that it's the case. It's been frequent throughout you know, recent history that former members of the intelligence and military community have come out and, and shared information about this, some tidbits of data where possible. And so it's not surprising to me that now finally we're getting to the place where members of the military and intelligence community are willing to talk about this with reporters because I think it's of public interest to know if aliens have been here. And so it just seems to me that, that there will always be some folks who are afraid of aliens and therefore want to deny that they could be here. And that's fine. You can just warm up to it and whenever you're ready, accept it. But I think just waiting till we get concrete evidence from the government is more so coming from a place of fear 
than coming from a place of not believing something that's being reported and corroborated. If this were, you know, it's a topic of lesser galactic importance, perhaps they wouldn't say that when there are so many folks corroborating a story. Yeah, I, I want to count myself as the incredibly based on this issue because I'm both scared of the aliens but also believe that they're real. Um, but I do feel like this is kind of a soft launch, right? It seems like they're slowly giving little tidbits of information a little bit at a time. And I think it's probably to prevent the type of panic that we might see from what I, I think people we've interviewed on this program before have referred to as a deontological shock or an ontological shock. Um, you know, the, the idea of the government holding a press conference and saying, aliens are real, they've been here, we have their ships, we've touched them, they're in our possession, that would freak a lot of people out and it would probably lead to a bunch of, uh, a bunch of people buying up all the milk, eggs, and toilet paper at the grocery store if COVID were any indication. Um, just kidding, things would be a lot worse than that. So I understand you know, sort of the motivation behind trying to give piecemeal information. But I also think that the American people have a right in a democratic republic to know what kind of information their military and their government agencies are hiding from them when it directly concerns their well-being. And they should be able to make the decision on how they respond to this alien nightmare. I think you're right, and I'm a big fan of the soft launch. I'm a huge fan. Not everybody's always ready for, for a hard launch. There needs to be some time to process that this is a new reality and one that is different from your expectations, maybe. If they just came out and said, here's all the pictures of the spacecraft we've got, we've replicated a lot of the technology, we're at a point where we're competing with Russia and China about the replication of this technology, which is something that Michael Schellenberger said to us in our interview with him here on Rising, but that would be a lot of information for the public to process, especially the idea that there could have been non-human pilots. And so soft launching the aliens, I think, always has to be the method, because I think back to that War of the Worlds radio stream and what that did to folks when they thought that the fictional tale being told over the radio, the book being read, was actually news reporting about aliens coming to Earth. I mean folks descended into chaos. And I think that's what they want to avoid because I think many people have been taught to be afraid of things that they don't understand instead of curious. And a consequence of that is fear of aliens. And so it would, I think, make sense for these military and intelligence officials to actually not be whistleblowers or not people who are leaking information, but people who are part of a, a very well-calculated effort to soft launch the aliens. I'm all for it. Restaurants do soft launches all the time, and it's to work out kinks in the wait staff and, you know, in the kitchen and make sure that everything is running smoothly. So I understand definitely the motivation here. And I do think that people are probably more apt to accept the idea of extraterrestrial life if they're given bits of information at a time. Um, just coming out and showing a picture of one of the greys is probably going to lead to a lot of people laughing about it or not taking it seriously because of how absurd it really sounds. But if over a couple of decades or over the course of five years or so, you get the conversation started, right? You get the buzz about the aliens. People start to talk about it in a way that is more serious. They start to almost have it in their subconscious that these things are real. When the time finally comes to see the pictures and the evidence, 
there will already be sort of an innate acceptance of what's happening. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right on that. And the next step will be we've got to get together. We've got to elect a human ambassador to the aliens. I hope I can count on everybody's support. <laughs> I think that's going to be the best part of this. But I also do think we have such a, a vast population of conspiratorial folks and I think that's just a result of, you know, the U.S. government not always being open about information like this. And so I think there's going to be a whole host of conspiracies when we get to the point where the government is releasing evidence, because that distrust has been sown over decades, if not centuries in the United States, where there's just been a disconnect between the American public and who has access to information like this. And so I think that really needs to change. And I really appreciate Avi Loeb's perspective that, this should never be a competition among global powers like Russia, China, and the United States. This is a, a, a matter of, of interest for humanity. It's not something that respects national borders. These are potentially beings coming or life coming from other planets within our galaxy or beyond our galaxy. And I think for governments to work together on this, we're going to get a lot of folks who hate the notion of any kind of global cooperation and the notion of globalism, they're going to say, well, is this just a conspiracy theory? So we can have some kind of global decision-making order or government. And I think getting ahead of that is going to be very difficult because this is something that is going to require international cooperation. That wraps it up for us today. And we will be back with you all next week. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Jessica, it was great to see you again. We'll be back next Friday. If I don't get beamed up. <laughs> <laughs>